It's Talking Twins and more with Nix and Naomi. Thanks to twinfo.com.au and doublebub.com.au. It's Talking Twins and more, a multiple birth podcast with myself, Nix, and joining me from twinfo.com.au, my wonderful co-host, Naomi Dolan. Hello, how are you going this week? Hello, Nikki. So I'm really excited to be joined today by our guest. Um, This is something I've had a lot of personal experience with, so I'm really um, interested to hear from Amber from Nest Therapy. Welcome, Amber. Thanks for having me on, guys. So I'm super excited. Amber is not only a twin mum, but she's also a speech pathologist, um, and she owns her own um, therapy clinic that has all sorts of um, occupational therapists, uh, physiotherapists plus speech pathologists. So she's a wealth of knowledge in all areas and um, also a twin mum. So it's great to have you with us today. Um, Let's start with talking a little bit about how you came about to find out and that you were um, going to be a parent of multiples. Um, so my beautiful twins are coming up to three now. I always say they're two and a half, but they're September babies. So we're not far off three. Uh, so they were pandemic babies. So we had all the scans and stuff by ourselves. No one could come to anything with us. Um, but we fell pregnant and my mum actually joked that there were two in there um, and said that She thought that would be hilarious. And then we went off for our first ultrasound and came out of it and called my mum and said, you were right, there are two in there. I hope you really like babies. Um, And then, yeah, we had the, I guess, the very typical pandemic pregnancy of not really seeing people a lot um, and going through most of it by ourselves, which was interesting. Um, And then I actually was at my last day of work with clients at... 34 weeks and one day Um, and I'd had a fall about two days earlier at a client's house and uh, my body had decided that it was time for the twins to come out. So my son Hamish was born first, Uh, he was ready to go and then my daughter came about two minutes later, Um, so cesarean birth because she was not happy about coming out. (laughs) (laughs) It was the same with me actually, mine were born at 34 plus um yeah but it was my girl who was ready to come out and my boy who wasn't Hmm. yeah my son came out screaming and ready to chat to the world and my daughter was fine but yeah just just was not keen to actually be out there in the real world oh bless it's such a common thing with multiples isn't it yeah definitely and I think you know the whole process and um for me I know going through it I've worked with kids since I was a teenager I've been babysitting or I'm working alongside kids and families through my career as well Uh, and so many families that you speak to particularly when you learn that you're having twins there's a lot more twins out there than you really think about Um, but yeah it's amazing how many either decide that one's ready and one's not or um, or both are not quite ready to come out or um, yeah you just learn all these different things about twins along the way. I often wonder what would happen if, um, and I know it has happened in situations where they where, where one has been born and they've managed to hold off. It, it's very rare. But I've often wondered what would have happened for me personally if Alexis, you know, she was ready to come out. Um, I reckon Oliver would have stayed in there quite happily for a lot longer. I think I was really just, would have done. Yeah. Sorry, but, yeah, I was exactly the same. And it is interesting to see 
and going forward with what we're going to talk about with speech and developmental stuff, I often wonder what would have been the situation with one of my sons had he had a bit of longer time in utero, but he was forced to come out because he was a failure to thrive. So, yeah, it's hard to know. And it's interesting that it's a, it's common in the twin story or the multiple stories. I've got to ask, what did your mum say, Amber, when you did tell her? And when you said, uh, she thought I was lying initially, so she didn't believe us. Um, and then we might have done the same when we had the twins because we didn't have them until about 10.30 at night. Um, and by the time, you know, got to the ward and everything and they couldn't come to see us anyway, um, I didn't call them until the next morning. And I, I called my mum and I was like, oh, you know, what are you up to today? She's like, oh, just at work. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm in hospital. We had the twins last night. She's like, no, you didn't. I was like, we did. We had the twins. We have a little boy and a little girl because um, we didn't find out what we were having beforehand. So I was in a little bit of trouble for not telling her earlier. Oh, dear. That's funny. Did you, because um, I, I, the same, I, I didn't know what I was having and I've got a boy and a girl. Um, and I actually guessed right and I actually guessed that the one down the bottom was the girl and this one was a boy. Did you have any indication? What did you think you were having? I suspected it was a girl and a boy um, and I, I thought that my son was lower um, but I have had enough sort of medical-ish training. You know, we do have to do a lot of anatomy and physiology through uni so I had enough that I could kind of look at the ultrasounds and not no 100%. I did tell them not to specifically show me yeah. what we were having uh, because my husband didn't want to know. Um, but I kind of had an educated guess about it, I guess. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. It's. Um... How have you gone with the parenting journey, particularly with multiples, having had such a, a career that's obviously been so close to children? Um, how's it been adjusting to being the mum and mum of multiples? It's hard. I mean, obviously, I knew that it would be hard becoming a mom. It's a completely different experience. Um, and as I say to all of the families that I work with, it's very easy for me to walk in and say, this is what we need to do. But I know that the reality of actually putting that in place is very different. Um, and also, I come from the background of, you know, working with children and alongside other professionals. I've worked with a lot of pediatricians and psychologists and um, social workers and things over the years. So I guess I've got a lot of additional knowledge in addition to my degree but it's very different implementing that day-to-day -day. Um, and I know it's something that my husband finds hard sometimes because I'm like well this is what I know the research says but actually putting that in place is not always the same as you know what it says even things like tv time um, we, we definitely watch a little bit of bluey in this house um, I'd prefer not to have tv on but Sometimes I need 10 minutes to cook dinner without two children hanging off my legs or trying to get to the stove themselves. It's, it's so true. You have your, your best laid plans as a parent and I think the, the multiple factor on top, you go, now I'm going to be one, like my kids are going to eat, I know I was like, my kids are going to eat seven vegetables and they're going to eat fruit and there's going to be no Oreos and snacks like that. My kids are straight home from school and there's Oreos, there's tiny teddies and I'm like, whatever, we're alive, we're breathing. I, I always, it, isn't it? I always say that um, I was the perfect parent raising my hypothetical single child before I became a parent, and then I was blessed with two. And um, yeah, that that didn't quite turn out the way I'd planned or thought it would. I think even just thinking about sort of that developmental side as well, you know, you think this is my child, my hypothetical child. This is sort of how things are going to progress. 
but until you've actually had said child or children um, and experience it, it's completely different. And, you know, I obviously have a lot of knowledge in terms of development and there's still things that I question um, or things that I kind of go, oh, is this something to be concerned about or is this actually normal development? Well, that's actually really reassuring to hear coming from a professional, you know, that, you know, you've got your doubts as well occasionally and things like that. Like, um, And I think a, a lot of it does come down sometimes just to, you know, parental instinct and things like that as well. But um, it's always worth getting checked out, though. Definitely. And I think that's one of the biggest things. Um, there's definitely been things that I've had to push with doctors and paediatricians for my own children, as well as with clients, of course. But I'm coming into this as a professional who has children, so I can see both sides of it. And if if people have concerns, you're much better off pushing um, and finding out that nothing's wrong, which is obviously, you know, what we want is to have happy, healthy children, um, but much better to push it a little bit and go through any testing you need or get the support you need Um so that if there is anything that's going on, uh, any areas that do need support, you can get them supported early as well. So let's have a little chat about your main area of expertise of speech um, because I know for me, like my daughter went through years of speech therapy. Um, so it's something, it's a topic that's quite close to my heart. And um, I was just talking to someone the other day and we were talking about what would your dream job be if you could retrain as something and um, mine was speech therapist. So, um, yeah. Happily taking. Feel free to retrain. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I, it's, it's very close to my heart because of everything that um, my daughter went through. So tell us a bit about um, how you got into it and, and why. Um, so I knew I wanted to work in health. I have always, uh, I've had some medical issues myself in the past, so I knew that that was kind of an area that I wanted to be in, uh, but I didn't want to go into physio or OT um, or even medicine um, at that stage. Um, and so I was actually just looking through when we used to have the old QTAC guides that were actually the big, heavy <laughs> uh, books that you would look through, and I was literally just flicking through that and came across speech pathology and I read about it went, oh that sounds really interesting I mentioned it to my parents that that's what I thought I might go into and they were like I've never even heard of that I didn't have I uh, any sort of links with speech pathology and either did my sister when we were kids so it wasn't something that either of us had really been exposed to but the more that I read about it and looked into it the more I went yeah that actually sounds like something that combines my love of sort of language and reading and writing and um, and talking always helps as well uh, with helping people, which is something that I have always loved to do. It's, it's such a, an interesting field to go into and it's becoming a stronger and stronger thing that people are aware of. I mean, I, I know that I haven't tapped me, but I too, I mean, Hunter was flagged as, um, he, well, he's autistic, but um, the first thing that we picked up on was his speech and the lack of speech and the fact that he was lagging in making sentences. We were kind of lucky in a way because we had his twin brother to, to benchmark him off. But then at the same time, I got criticised very heavily because it was like, you're comparing them, you're, you're, he's not, the, they're not the same kids. And I'm like, yeah, but by the age of three, this child was struggling to say words. Um, we've been in speech therapy, intense speech therapy since he was three years old. And 
I can't emphasize enough the, the impact it's made, made on his life. It, it's just he, he's a different kid at seven now because we've had such strong support through speech. It's so important. And I think do you feel there's becoming more awareness and more um, support out there or is it still a struggle to get those resources? It can go both ways, I think. So I think there's definitely more awareness of speech pathology. There's still a lot of, I guess, misunderstanding about what speech pathologists can do. We do cover a very large range of areas. Uh, so people typically think of speech pathologists working on speech sounds. Uh, so, you know, working on your S, lisps and uh, stutters perhaps. But we actually work on a whole range of things. So all of the language, understanding and using languages, speech pathology, uh, literacy as well. So it's an additional area that we get trained in, but our base knowledge is actually quite strong on literacy and there's a lot of links between language development and literacy. Uh, but we also work on things like uh, feeding as well, which is an area that a lot of people don't think about. So anything to do with basically the neck up, we work on. So I do a lot of feeding therapy and I love it, yeah. um, but it's definitely something that's not thought about. Yeah, it's really interesting because you don't, until you kind of learn about it, you don't realise or you're in it, you don't realise the huge facet of things. And also, um, like I know our OT and speech work really, really closely towards together because it's that whole package of confidence. Like for our son, um, he was having a lot of meltdowns and a lot of emotional um, problems due to the fact that he couldn't communicate and he couldn't articulate. And then, yeah, he has a lot of food sensory things that go with that. So it's all married in as one. It's, it's a really big package. And even if you think about that emotional side, uh, so occupational therapists will often work on emotional regulation as a specific skill, but you then look at the skills surrounding that. So obviously the language side, if you can't understand language or use language, your ability to actually regulate your emotions, it, it's really impacted upon. But also if you're being taught all of this very language-heavy emotional regu regulation skill set but you don't have any of the words to go with it it just makes it impossible so unless we're actually working on these things alongside other professionals there's often these big gaps in those skills and let's um the big question that and that um because when I would tell people that my daughter had a speech disorder a lot of times people would say oh is that because she's a twin Definitely not because she's a twin, um, but there is a higher rate within uh, multiple births. Uh, they're not entirely sure of the reason why. There is obviously the impact of prematurity. Um, and we know, as you guys know, that uh, prematurity is higher in multiple births. Um, but they're actually not really sure of a lot of the reason behind the fact that multiples will potentially need more support. Uh, I think the other big thing um, that Nikki touched on before is the fact that we do compare twins a little bit more. Um, and I am the first person to say not to compare your kids because they're all individuals. Um, but I've done exactly the same thing with mine. Um, and we ended up needing grommets for my daughter. And honestly, her language, given that I'm a speech pathologist, wasn't terrible. Um, it was kind of sitting at a borderline of typical um, for her age, which was fine. Uh, but when you compared that to her brother, who obviously had exactly the same language input, uh, because they do pretty much everything together, uh, you could see the really big difference. He was talking in 
five, six word sentences, um, whereas my daughter was maybe using two word sentences at the time. Now that we've had grommets and she can actually hear properly, we actually um, have seen that dramatic increase in her language. So I think that's a really important thing is to actually look at those that surrounding environment and also get things like a hearing test done because our GP was happy to write the referral to have a hearing test done uh, but wasn't particularly concerned about my daughter's hearing. You know, she could hear words, she was understanding things, she was following instructions, but when we actually did the hearing test, she had a moderate hearing loss. Yeah, right. So at what point should you be worried? Is there any kind of guideline? Is like, you know, X number of words by X age or anything like that for people? Or is it more so, like, my daughter had a huge vocabulary, just no one could understand her. Um, yeah. She had a really severe phonological speech disorder. So it was like she was just talking gobbledygook. Now, I could understand most things she said. Oliver could understand pretty much everything, and I had to do a big thing with the kindy and everything like that. Don't rely on him and don't ask him, what's Alexa saying? Like, for me, that was a big thing. Um, unless she was really upset and crying or, you know, if there was an actual problem, then, of course, I, we need to get to the bottom of it quickly. But, um, yeah, I had to actually say to them, don't ask Oliver to what Alexis And I think saying. a lot of settings like that do often rely on the other twin mm. um, because they, they do understand each other. They, you know, we do have this incidence of twin language as such, which... My kids don't have a specific twin language where it's their own words, but they definitely understand each other more than anybody else will understand them. Uh, in terms of, I guess, those red flags and things, so we I see children from as young as weeks old uh, because I do work on feeding and um, I guess the structures of the mouth as well. When we're looking at red flags for speech and language development, we don't really start to, I guess, have concerns so much until they're about 18 months to two years. Uh, so by two years, uh, and I would go off corrected age, obviously here. So by two years, I would be expecting about 50 words and I would be expecting kids to be putting them together. So they should be putting two words together. And, and often that is uh, a noun and a verb. So um, daddy go, car fast, um, mummy up, things like that where they're combining uh, an, an action uh, with or a description with a person or a thing. And if you can imagine those different groups of words, that's how we then build longer sentences. So as they develop more words, they can then add those on and we create these lovely long sentences. What we often see is that uh, children will get stuck with either a limited vocabulary where they don't have the words for things. And that could be because they're not hearing them properly or there's another reason behind them not having that language, or they can get a little bit stuck joining those words together. And sometimes all you need is a little bit of support, a little bit of encouragement, changing the way that we do things a little bit to actually encourage that um, joining of words together and then that language development. For other kids, they need obviously longer and ongoing therapy. Uh, and when we're looking at the speech sound, in terms of what we're actually hearing, not just the words, we're usually expecting by about uh, three to four years of age that most people, so that's people outside the home as well, uh, should be understanding about half of what they're saying. By the time they're getting ready for 
kindy um, or the year before school for those in different states, uh, we're expecting them to be understood like an adult. They, they may still have a couple of sounds that they're still developing, uh, but the majority of people should understand what they're saying the majority of the time. I'm just um, just thinking back as you were talking, yeah, and there was a huge difference between my son and my daughter in all of that um, the whole way through. So it's interesting because, again, I was the same. You know, it's like having your own built-in science experiment when you've got a, a twin or a triplet. Um, it's a, it's a living, living experiment. Um, and I know you're not meant to compare them, but you do. Um, and I think that's been the biggest thing for me as well, particularly having a boy and a girl. Yeah. Uh, in general, when we see language delays, boys are more likely to have them. But actually, because my daughter couldn't hear properly, it's been her that's yeah. been that little bit behind. So it's been very interesting for me. Yeah, right. What are the first steps that parents should be taking in terms of if they think that their child is behind? Because I remember for me that that hardest moment was is it just a delay? Is it the twin thing? They've developed their own language. Harry, to a point, is speaking um, for Hunter and Harry's not without his own speech delays again with the multiple thing as well. I mean, when you say, you know, they by a certain age they should be speaking quite coherently and mine neither of mine still struggle at one and in year one. Um, but, yeah, what, what are those sort of, if you think there's that difference between, because it's so hard for parents to determine, is it a speech delay? Is there something going on there or is it just going to write itself what what are some of the flags that we can look for so first thing if you have a concern about speech or language I would be getting a hearing test uh, families are often uh, when I speak to them during an intake call they're a little bit confused about this because obviously we do have the universal newborn hearing screening in Australia which mm. does pick up on most um, major issues but obviously we can have hearing loss that can begin at any age uh, and particularly for young children, uh, they don't have to have any sort of ear infections to actually have had fluid build up behind the ear. And that was my daughter to a T. She had no ear infections at all, no major illnesses, um, not even like regular runny noses or anything. But she had so much fluid building up behind her um, eardrums that it was having a major impact on her hearing. So the first thing is definitely to go for a hearing test. Um, I would usually link in with a GP as well. Uh, just to touch base, they aren't necessarily the best knowledge base in terms of early development because they do have to have uh, such a wide amount of knowledge about things, but definitely keeping them in the loop with things. Uh, and for those younger kids, if you've got early concerns, uh, the NDIS early intervention, if you have more than one area of concern, which realistically, uh, if there's concerns with communication, there's usually concerns in another area as well. Uh, so getting in early to get support would be my biggest thing. Oh, Much better um, to get it started from the beginning. Yeah, look, Naomi knows this and a lot of our listeners. I'm, I'm such an advocate for this. I mean, I, I pushed and pushed when I had enough red flags when Hunter was three and um, you know, we, we've got a few diagnoses, and but he is in mainstream schooling. He's an incredibly, he, he, you know, the way that he's changed in the last four years. And I, I put it all down to just jumping on it really early, having that speech intervention, having that OT intervention, having the right pediatricians and psychologists working with him. Um, it, it's just so critical. And I think the important thing to remember is that 
there are actually big waiting lists for most allied health across Australia at the moment. Uh, so if you have concerns, I would get on waiting lists, um, try and get cancellation appointments if you can, because once you've got that initial assessment done, um, even if that initial assessment is more of an observation to begin with, it's going to give you a much clearer path in terms of what is going to happen next or where you need to go next. Uh, so it might be that they see you and they go, actually, I think everything's okay at the moment. Let's check in again in about six months. Or they might say, actually, no, I think that therapy now is the best option or, you know, NDIS or whatever it might be um, for those next steps or other therapists as well. Such great advice. That is such great advice. As I said, I'm such an advocate for early intervention. <laughs> I really honestly it just, believe. It's such a life changer. Um, and I think particularly changed our lives completely like I, I have moments when we hit bad times now um and it's interesting for me I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this we get situations where um hunter's speech regresses when he's very overwhelmed so if he's emotionally overwhelmed particularly say if he's sick if he's got a cold or a flu and he's um struggling to process that emotionally i find that his speech regresses quite substantially um I don't, I don't know if there's any logic to that or, I mean, he has been told, I've been told briefly that kind of it's because he has to think so hard about his speech. I don't know if that, that makes sense from a professional point of view. Well, I guess if you think about all of us as well, you know, if you're having a really stressful day at work, it can impact on your ability to communicate. You get home at the end of the day and I swear there are some days that I don't know how to speak when I get home. Uh, so I think that if you think about it from an adult perspective, we do have those moments ourselves. But if you then actually have to put extra effort into thinking about how we speak and getting those sounds and words and language structure out, if it doesn't come quite as naturally, uh, it can have a really major impact when you actually then have additional things on top as well. Absolutely. I know that um, my husband and I, Dave and I were sick with COVID recently at the same time and um I swear we just communicated in grunts to each other. <laughs> just couldn't. We both kind exactly. of got it. And I was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> we can be nice to each other later. We just grunted <laughs> to each other. <laughs> it's just that additional load on top. Um, and, you know, that can be the smallest thing. You know, if you think about, um, and it's, I guess this is probably more an occupational therapy kind of area, but if you think about all of us across the day, we often talk about sort of the volcano analogy. And so we start our day down the bottom of the volcano and then, you know, the kids are taking forever to get ready in the morning. So you move up the volcano a little bit, but you know what? You can grab a coffee on the way to work. So we come back down and we calm down a little bit. Mm. And then there might be traffic on the way or you get emails or a phone call that's a bit annoying. And we do move up the volcano, but we have our ways and strategies of bringing ourselves down. We chat to people, we go for a walk, whatever it might be for us. Whereas for a lot of children in particular, uh, they don't necessarily have those strategies to bring themselves back down. So, you know, they might get up in the morning and they haven't slept very well. So they start to go up the volcano and then they um, are getting ready for school and they don't have the pair of socks that they wanted. And so they're going up the volcano and then something happens at school and it can be the tiniest little thing that results in a a meltdown that people around them are going, why are they having this reaction or, you know, why can't they communicate in this moment? But it's in all those little things across the day that have actually resulted in them not being able to cope in that moment and having that what other people see as an explosion or a meltdown. 
But actually, if we look at their whole day, there were all these little triggers that brought them up there and they just don't have the strategies to bring themselves back down or the way to say this is what's going on. So true. That's that's literally what we live by day by day. And we use the bucket instead of the volcano, but I kind of yeah. like the bucket because it's more expo- uh, the volcano, it's more explosive. It kind of goes with the air a little it's bit It's what better. we actually see, isn't it? Yeah, because we've always got the buckets overflowing, but I kind of like the volcano because it is it can be explosive. It's often explosive, but you're right, and, and it's something that we've had to learn, you, particularly in, once you get to school age, you'll often pick them up and, and that, that volcano is ready to pop the minute they get in the car from And you don't know those little things that have been each of those tiers that have built up, but that volcano is ready to explode and you've just got to take the wrath of it. And so many parents, you know, the kids hop in the car and straight away they say, how was school today? What did you do? Who did you play with? What did you learn about? And those little tiny things are often the things that just tip it all over the edge for them. Um, And it's hard to recover from that. You know, we often kind of think that kids will just come down, you know, either empty the bucket or they'll come down from the volcano. But it's not as simple as we have this meltdown and then suddenly we're fine we've actually just kind of gone over the top a little bit and we can very easily go back up the top again for another another explosion. It takes a lot to get the volcano completely empty again. <laughs> Definitely. Barely pour that bucket of water into the volcano. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Amber, it's been absolutely awesome chatting to you and thank you for enlightening us. It's such a big thing that parents are going through, the speech thing, and, and it is so hard to know when it's just your gut feeling or whether it's, something you should act on and those triggers. So it's been really fantastic seeing hearing it from your perspective and the fact that you're also a multi-mum as well. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Amber, where can people find you for more information? What's your um, socials or your website? Yeah, so our social media is Nest Therapy Services um, and our website is just nesttherapyservices.com.au. Um, I'm always happy to answer any questions or have a chat have a chat to families as well um, if they aren't sure if they need to be concerned or not sure what the next steps are. Because the good thing now, like one thing that COVID did open up to us is um, the advantage of telehealth. Um, So you can do speech therapy via telehealth. So you don't need to be living in the actual region to for something like that, do they? We can see families across Australia or most of Australia. and it's quite easy and often actually more beneficial to do it via telehealth. So we have the ability to actually get the engagement with kids because there's lots of fun things on the internet. Uh, we don't have to travel and you don't have to travel. Yeah, uh, but definitely. also, particularly coming into winter, um, I am trying to avoid illnesses at all costs. So avoiding actually seeing people when we do just have that little bit of a sniffle um, is even better. Yeah, definitely. No, that's for sure. So that's one thing that um, people can keep in mind is, um, as you said, to get onto those waiting lists. But you don't need, you know, you can reach out. And obviously Amber's a twin mum herself. She totally gets it. Um, So, yeah, head off to Nest Therapy if you've got any queries. And, um, Amber, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's brought back a lot of memories for me. Um, And... Yeah, I'm also a massive advocate for getting in early. So um, if anything that anyone can take from what we've you've heard today from both Nikki and I from a personal experience and from Amber, 
um, personally with the grommets and from a professional point of view is to get in there as soon as you can. It's Talking Twins and more with Nick's and Naomi. Thanks to twinfo.com.au and nickyainley.com.